Hello, friends, and welcome to the Palsies with Palsy podcast. And do not adjust your sense because this week I'm the Palsy, as usual, Justin Hancock. I'm the Palsy, Ken Crawford. Yay, we have a special guest. Well, um, the usual Palsy, Rebecca Mids, is actually here in Dallas spending some time with family and being anti-Rebecca a little bit to our Angus and most uh, especially to her niece Rosie. I am delighted to welcome to the show my good friend and friend of the show, the Reverend Ken Crawford. Ken, it's so good to see you and to have you on the show finally. It is good to see you and I am delighted as well and um, and of course, you know, sad that, that it required Rebecca having uh, something else to do rather than get to be the palsy with you today. But uh, I'm glad that, that I get to be the beneficiary of that. So I'm excited for our time together. Well, we will definitely, we will definitely find time to get the trio back together, as it were, and do a full compliment show. Um, but again, we have wanted to do this, friends, for quite some time. Ken and I have known each other for several years now. And uh, Ken, as our show has gone on, particularly the last three weeks, we have, Rebecca and I have found ourselves having really interesting conversations with first our friend Matt Schroeder, last week our friend Lindsay. Williams came on and talked about grief, and and we just have been fascinated about how those conversations intersect with the disabled space and the queer space, and I couldn't think of somebody to have a a more sort of life-connected conversation with than you, so thanks again. Yeah, I appreciate that. It, uh, what an honor. Um, particularly in the way you set that up as conversations in the the disabled space and the queer space that that I would be somebody that that you would uh, you would want to to be a part of that conversation that's gosh that's such a humbling um, humbling thing to hear so it means I've been doing something right I think You've been doing a lot of good work for a long time, and and we've been privileged to work together, and I think that's a good place to start. I would like to get your perspective and have you help us lead the audience into how we met and came to collaborate on so much. Sure. So um, our initial meeting was over on the other side of the Trinity River in uh, Cowtown with the Horn Frogs at TCU and Bright. And you were there um, representing your work and I was there representing my work and uh, some other friends, including our redheaded Puerto Rican lesbian friend, Darren, were there. And, and we, uh, yeah, we just kind of, the magic happened, the sparks flew and, and uh, it's been, been a wild ride since then. And we've, we've gotten to be a part of other organizations together, and um, and we've gotten to be part of one another's organizations, the Julian Way and, and 
the Institute for Vital Ministry and the congregations where I've served. And uh, so that's all, that's all been great. I think the kind of the, the anchoring thing was the time uh, five or so years that we spent at the Grove co-working space. I know for me, that was an opportunity to learn uh, entrepreneurship and a new, new expressions of collaboration and community um, that aren't rooted in churchy expressions and churchy language. And that was super important for me. And then, uh, you know, getting to, to be more involved with the Julian way, getting to travel with you and Lisa uh, in um, the pre-Angus days uh, to Atlanta for the theology and disability conference and other kinds of things and just getting to come along on y'all's journey um, in the ministry that you do has been, has been real, just an honor and it's been exciting and fun and humbling and uh, life-giving for me. Well, it's likewise for me too. And I, I would throw in that one of the things that has, um, been so intriguing about not only our working relationship but as our friendship has ripened and deepened into a brotherhood and family with one another and by extension each other's families um, I have always been impressed by your uh, moving through the world with this uh, ability to combine healthy spiritual life and pursuit of spiritual practices. And I guess Grove makes a lot of sense in this context because entrepreneurship and adventure uh, come to mind for me and a lot of our experiences. Uh, we often have general plans when we uh begin but tend to jump off and say okay this is the general plan and beyond this certain hour or hours of time we'll see where the rest of it goes um yeah that's that's my sense of our relationship and that's something that has always struck me about the way you do direction the way you talk about spiritual practice and overall health um, in life. Can you talk about that or uh, endeavor to elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah, ab absolutely. And, and to do that, I would have to start at church camp where I was uh, for a week, several weeks ago, uh, back at the beginning of August. And where, where my, that's really where I found my theological voice and where I found my spiritual grounding uh, as a fourth grader, uh, going into, going into fifth grade, I guess. Um, and I used to, I used to say, because I believed that God lived at church camp, uh, camp I grew up, uh, where I grew up and where I'm on the board is, uh, outside of Athens, Texas called Disciples Crossing. Um, and I know the Methodists, I've been to some Methodist camps and others and you no, know, there's there's great holy places in lots of lots of campgrounds. Um, mm. But I used to say that God lived at camp um, and would just come into town for the weekends <laughs> to visit the folks at church. And part of the reason I describe that um, in response to your prompt is that I think camp is very much the way you just set it up. Is that 
there is a plan. Um, but when you're out in nature and when you're working with a bunch of adolescents, like you got to go with the flow. The plan has to be fluid. Uh, it's, there's a lot of improv, which I know is dear to your heart, um, of yes and, right? It's, it's mm. saying, okay, well, here's the thing that's happened. Like almost every interaction with an adolescent needs to be yes and. Um, you know, meet folks where they are, meet them where they are, whatever, however they're articulating or narrating their lives and the Bible story or whatever, it's a, and just, just build on that and play, you know, variations on a theme. And then from there to go to college, uh, studying architecture and the creative expressions there. Uh, and then, you know, God went from the church camp to the Habitat build site uh, in, and the soup kitchen. Um, both of both, you know, all of that taking place in your hometown of Lubbock and um, and and sometimes, you know, out under the stars in the middle of a cotton field somewhere and sometimes in Paladura Canyon or in uh, in the mountains of New Mexico, but always in this place of, of showing up and having having some of the tools and resources that you might need, but not necessarily knowing how every everything was going to go unlike or maybe contrasted with or at least looked at alongside let's say to be gracious mm-hmm. um the way we do sunday morning worship in mainline churches where we literally like we literally have a script and we follow that script and if somebody goes off script people lose their minds um and and then we wonder you know why we struggle with spirituality and why we struggle with living our faith the rest of the week. So there might be something there to pursue at, at another time. Uh, but yeah, I think it's, for me, it's, it's that in terms of my spirituality um, and, and the sense of playfulness. I was in theater in high school so that, you know, the sense of imagination and wonder. Uh, I've also always been somebody who's really generally, I mean, there are exceptions, I suppose, but generally very comfortable with ambiguity and with mystery mm-hmm. maybe maybe that's probably safer to say is comfortable mm-hmm. with mystery and not knowing uh and not having answers to things um i you know i a lot of the stuff people uh wrestle with each other and even spill blood over literally uh around ideas about god and the nature of human life like i i'm quite content to say i don't know and I, don't, I honestly don't think it matters. Like I, I, if you think it matters, then then more power to you. But like I, I don't spend any time or energy thinking about a lot of those things that are so important to other people. Um, mm-hmm. And and that you know that in part frees up my mental and emotional energy for other stuff that I think is maybe more important. Um, at least for the way I'm seeking to live out my life as a follower of Jesus. You know, I think that is so uh, that is so interesting and such a, a great companion piece to the way that my uh, theology uh, has evolved in the last several years, and our theology has involved through friendship together. Um, because I often talk about God. You know, this podcast spends a lot of time when we're not talking about ridiculous pop culture references and I'm making absurd movie pulls from 1970 whatever Uh, we spend a lot of time talking about the margins and the marginalized but I really 
do believe that God functions best around the edges. Mm. And I, I like to describe myself. I'm not a universalist because in my own anchoring in faith, there are definitely things that matter to me definitively about Christ. Sure. Uh, but I'm, I'm universal-ish is the way that I like <laughs> to describe it. Um, because I have had such deep conversations with people from a wide variety of spectrums. Lindsay, who was on the show last week, is a wonderfully, you know, creative and daring spirit about the way mm. she engages God, our yeah. Porter, our redheaded Puerto Rican lesbian friend who talks definitively and consistently about the shower goddess. Right. Uh, yeah. Just the variety of things that come, come along and interplay with the uh, ways that I encounter God and yet being able to be grounded in this profound sense of orthodoxy and anchoring mm. and in the old, what I would describe maybe uncharitably is the, the old classical evangelicalism Right. I was raised in. Sure. Um, you know, it's sort of one of those things. I can criticize it all I want because that's my family. Right. But I've read books out of my more uh, liberal friends who, where I'm more constantly centered these days that tend to stereotype that classical evangelicalism. Mm. And I'm like, well, that's that's not that's not charitable and you know let's be honest about it but i'm curious about you mentioned um something right at the end there and i'm i'm aware Mm. that you and i are in unique positions right now because you just started a new job and uh a new adventure and i deal with and interact with the uh you know established church on a daily basis through funding my nonprofit so to get deeply into this conversation we requ- require another 9 hour show right um, but what do you which I'm, which I'm here for by the way i'm up, i'm up for that on another day yes absolutely <laughs> absolutely <laughs> That'll be part two and subsequent. Uh, But just to, excuse me, just to uh, begin that conversation, what do you think the uh, regular sort of mainline practice of worship Mm. and the way we quote unquote do, do church in this country can learn from that sense of openness and mystery and adventure and i realize that's a very broad question but take a shot yeah no sure i appreciate that um so one of the one of the things that occurs to me i mean i grew up i grew up in the mainline church i'm a fifth generation in the christian church disciples of christ um my dad's grandfather uh one of my dad's grandfathers wrote the definitive um, history, uh, of the mid 20th century for our denomination. Um, 
and, and I love the church. Like when I was in high school, uh, I worked at the mall. Um, and on Sundays I had to be at work at 11. And so that involved me going to the early service, which everybody had blue or white hair and, and we sang the old hymns, uh, you know, and I was the youngest person, um, by two generations at least. Uh, and so I love, like, I love, 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 and was formed by the traditional church. And I think that, and I was in a conversation with somebody just the other day who said that both of her kids, one, one goes to a Western Orthodox church and one has converted to Catholicism, Roman Catholicism. And, Mm -hmm. and, and they're, and they both grew up in disciples, you know, and, and, both of those adult children now describe the importance of, of ritual and, and the, the, the sameness of it. And so I think, you know, in our, in our culture today, there's so much change and there's so much uncertainty and there's so much unheaval that I think there is a real value in a routine and you know what you're going to get, right? So the, it's the reason that McDonald's used to be so uh, popular and successful back when there weren't a bunch of competitors is because no matter where in the country you went to a McDonald's, you were going to get exactly the same experience, right? Mm-hmm. Exactly the same food, you know, prepared exactly the same way. And, and that kind of predictability, there's a comfort to having some of that. Um, so I think there's value there. And what I would want to propose and what I try to live is, is that, in the midst of that and alongside that we leave room for playfulness. We leave mm. room for the move of the spirit. Um, you know, if I, I think among the things that the pandemic is teaching us uh, is that we are not in control. Uh, <laughs> and, and the fights, the fights that have been emerging are about people trying to be in control of things that they can't be in control of. And, and people are literally dying as a result. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so, uh, you know, I, I think the, in the ideal world, and I, I won't presume to say I've ever accomplished this except in, you know, brief moments, but I think in the ideal world, Christian worship and probably worship and, and spirituality of other traditions as well has, has the, uh, enough of this, the routine and the ritual like the Eucharist, let's say, and our mm-hmm. traditions, the Lord's Supper, to be a container for all of the uncertainty and the mystery and the, mm. fluid, and the fluidity. Um, and so, you know, part of the work that I try to do is to uh, help people imagine, like, again, using improv to not say, we're not going to do that anymore. We're going to start doing this instead. Um, but to say, yes, and to say, yeah, keep, if you want to, if that serves a purpose and it meets a need and we have the resources for it, um, then it may be fine to continue to do whatever it is. Yeah. And we've got these other people that want to come alongside us and they've got other things they want to do that they find life giving and we've got room and we, you know, we've got, we've got resources that they could use to be able to do that. And as a result, one of the gifts that's going to come as a, a side benefit is we're going to get to be in relationship with people that we would uh, maybe have passed by previously. 
because they don't look yeah. like us and they don't talk like us and they don't move like us and they don't have bodies like us and you know whatever whatever the thing is um and so i think that's uh that's one of the gifts that comes from that and it's like it's a struggle you know <laughs> and it's um there there have been people who have experienced my leadership in ministry that would say that it was a miserable failure <laughs> I, mm-hmm. I heard a story this morning about that just very recently <laughs> so so I know that that's there. Um, and I also know that the church of the 20th century is not going to serve 21st century needs. Yeah. Uh, and, and that, you know, you and I and anybody listening to this uh, in the coming weeks and months will not be alive when the dust finally settles on what the church becomes in the 22nd century. Yeah. And so our responsibility is to, is to hold the resources and the gift of God's good news and God's love. As our friend Katie Hayes says, when God gets everything God wants to hold that story, to pass it on to the next generation and, and then let go of it enough to let them build what they will out of it, you know, to let Angus and his generation build what they will out of it and, and their children and grandchildren. Um, And that's a, that's an unsettled, like we are, we are, you know, small boats out on a big ocean bobbing up and down and hopefully can, you know, lash ourselves to, to one another so that we can uh, survive and share resources to get across the, uh, that great vast sea. You know, and again, I'm just struck by the, the beautiful complexity and simplicity of all of that but particularly the last bit of what you said the the lashing together and the not being around knowing that you and I having this conversation um, will not be around when the dust settles into what the church will be in the next iteration Uh, I guess to put a bow on this time of this conversation Mm. or this section of this conversation as far as I'm concerned is there are several things that occurred to me as you were talking um the first of which I'm married to a liturgist Mm -hmm. uh who is smart doesn't even begin to approach right the way yeah. my wife engages with and crafts the liturgy but yeah she has a saying and it's becoming more clear the more time we spend with our son because he's almost three right now and we spend most of our lives uh, pandemic fun is on the playground because it's in the open air most times and it's fairly spread out and uh, we describe the liturgy as sort of the boundary or the fences around the playground oh wow and within that fence he can do whatever he likes but that fence is there to keep him safe and relatively uh contained not for limiting purposes but for safety purposes and routine purposes 
And that familiarity purpose, I guess, is a, is a more gentle way to say that. And that just is such a striking image for what the liturgy is to us, mm. that that really uh, reoccurs on several occasions like it did when you were talking. Um, and I think the next thing that I would like to uh, pull out that occurred to me when you were talking a moment ago was it's important for me to uh, endeavor as I move through the world as both the spiritual person who is fed by God and is one of the flock or one of the cloud of witnesses and as someone who is a leader within that cloud of witness mm -hmm. to hold the delicate balance of knowing absolutely what my convictions are and knowing that at the end of time or whatever that looks like when I stand before whatever we're going to stand before or sit before whatever we're going to before. Yeah. I might, I might be wrong. Yeah. And, and that's okay. But these are the convictions that I, these are the hills that, that I am willing mm. to die on. Yeah. And if I can confront God at the end of time and go, okay, you know, I made this choice out of love and wanting to journey with people. Mm. And I'm willing to, I'm willing to, you know, admit I may not know it all. Yeah. And I, I don't find, and I'm not tooting my own horn when I say mm. this, I mm. don't find a lot of that fundamentally operative especially within the mainline church yeah uh but it's so so important and um really and i realize i'm beginning to ramble so i will you brought up covid and i find myself having little covid moments throughout our podcast and a lot mm. of my blogs lately you said it. COVID has taught us that we don't know as much as we think we knew. Yeah. And we are, we have been given the gift of tremendous grace of being much less definitive about positions and hardening stances and yeah. engaging the world. And I, I look at that and I look at things like I'm, and an advocate for vac vaccinating as many people as quickly as possible mm -hmm. uh, and doing what it meant, mostly doing whatever we need to do to get that done. But then I look at my friends on the right who have raised very legitimate concerns to me in the last several weeks around the New York uh vaccine pass or mandatory vaccination ordinance to participate in a lot of the city's activities mm -hmm. and they go aren't there some some legitimate concerns for folks with disabilities and isn't the ordinance unclear in this regard and mm -hmm. it, it is so yeah. that has caused me to go okay I need to approach humans 
as humans and try to remember human stories yeah. before I just lump everybody into a sure a, a mass or a group. So yeah, I, I think that's real important. I agree. I know that was a lot of rambling folks, but um, it can tend to spark ideas. And then <laughs> two or three days later, I'll go, holy magical. And whoa, this really just hit me. So I apologies if you got a lot of the fresh rambling, Ken, or our audience. No worries. No worries. No. That, a couple of things emerge as you, as you said all of that. One... Um, is the theologian Dan Brown, um, uh, you know, makes clear to us what we already knew, which is that all communication is done through symbols. All symbols are referential um, and therefore inadequate to fully contain the ideas toward which they point. And so language is always incomplete. However precise it is, um, you know, however much we work it and massage it and you know, whether we, we craft the perfect bumper sticker or t-shirt slogan, or whether we write a 500 page dissertation, it's still referential and inadequate. And that's true of theological language as well. Um, and so one would hope that some humility would come with that. And the theologian Brene Brown of no relation, I think, says something that I used to reject because i didn't agree with it, but I've decided I was mishearing her. She says that, or what I heard to which I disagreed was that people are doing the best they can. And I think that's a load of crap. Actually, I think it's something else, but you know, in case there's a PG audience listening, I'll, I'll say it that way. Um, we use, we usually get the ear, the ear rating. You're fine. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I know. Um, but uh like, I, I don't think, because I, I know I often am not doing the best I can. Like, you know, I, I phone stuff in. I'm like, I don't want to work that hard. Like, I'm, I'm going to do, I'm going to do this. But we, and I know I can do better. I don't want to do better. This is what you get. Sorry. You know, um, <laughs> present, present moment, not included, of course. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but then I, I went and re-listened, and I can't even remember which book that's in, but I went and re-listened, and I heard what she actually says, which is that she says, I have found it helpful for myself to relate to other people as though everyone is doing the best they can. Ooh. Which yeah. is, a, you know, again, some symbols, uh, language, meaning. Yeah. Like that's a hugely different meaning and yeah. very similar language, but such a different meaning. Um, and so, you know, in part, it, it reminds me of, of Jesus's funny snarky line uh, about uh, loving your enemies, because by doing so, not only do you please God, uh, but you also will <laughs> piss them off. Um, which is like, you know, he borrows from Proverbs and says it's like pouring hot coals on their heads, which I just love that Jesus like has this wink and nod to be like, yeah, your enemies don't want you to love them. So if you love them, you're going to drive them nuts. You're going to make them <laughs> so mad. So like they're not going to go, oh, thank you so much for loving me. Right. So so you get to do the right thing and have some self-gratification. Um 
that you're sticking it to them at the same time. Uh, and, and so, you know, in a similar kind of a spirit, I think Brown is, Brene Brown is saying, I adopt this posture because it helps me to be a better version of me. I, I hope yeah. that it also helps others. I don't know if it does or not. I hope it does. But it helps me be a better version of me. It helps me be less cynical. It helps me be less angry. It helps me show up with more grace and generosity, which doesn't mean it's actually true. Like it's a, it's a mind game. It's, a, it's an exercise of imagination. To, you know, I'm, I'm going to pretend that other people are doing the best they can and I'm going to relate to them in that way. And my life's going to go better as a result. And yeah, that's I I failed at I failed at that driving into Dallas this morning a couple of times when people were not clearly not doing the best they could do. <laughs> you know, um, but yeah, I I think that uh, you know I whether it's the evangelical and, and you know I've I've always been on the the progressive end of that spectrum, and so when when ex evangelicals show up in the progressive world and their eyes are wide and and they talk about this new understanding of grace. I'm like, this is not new. It's been, it's always been here. You know, so I'm, I'm a bit befuddled at how, at how miraculous it, it feels for them. Um, mm-hmm. but, you know, whether it's that or, or, you know, red, blue or, or, you know, whatever, as long as, and our, our friend Shonda jaw posted a tweet recently revisiting a conversation she'd had before about this, um, the sort of gaslighting response to to justice conversations. Well, do you want to be right or do you want to be in relationship? And so, you know, the the person doing the gaslighting, the, the person who's on the wrong side of the conversation, clearly, uh, is is creating this false choice, right? And 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 one of the essential tenets, fundamental tenets of debating and rhetoric is that you never concede the question. You never let the other person determine the, the terms of the argument. You set your own terms mm-hmm. for the argument that you want to make. This is, I'm not going to say it as eloquently as she did, but what I took from away from it was, I want both. I want to be right and I want to be in relationship. And I want to be in relationship in particular with people who have experienced a lack of relationship, people on the margins. And mm-hmm. so if my being in relationship with them puts me at odds with you, that's not on me. That's not me. To, that's not me failing to choose relationship. That's you failing to choose relationship with me because you don't want to be in relationship with them. Right. Yeah. And to circle, uh, perhaps circle back and land part of this. Um, you mentioned my new job. So I'm in week two of a job as, as one of the, we don't use senior associate language, but one of the associates working for an African-American woman, Pastor Verzola Law is the senior pastor at, at Northway Christian Church in Dallas. And I'm a middle-class cisgender, overly educated, uh, non-disability presenting uh, white guy, right? <laughs> like, I've got, like I'm pretty, pretty close <laughs> to the very top of the privileged mountain. Like I'm, I'm really, really close to that and made a very conscious decision uh, to come and work for my friend who said, Hey, come and come and do this thing. I already know that people that when Northway made that decision to call her as their pastor, people left because she was a woman or because she was black. Mm -hmm. Both. 
Um, and I know that I will experience some of that by extension by coming alongside her, which I'm totally fine with. Um, doesn't mean it's going to be easy or fun, but I just, I know that's going to happen. You know, I, I want to be right and I want to be in relationship. But if my being in relationship with her means that somebody else has a problem with me, that's not my problem. That's their problem. Um, and they'll probably try to make it my problem. But, uh, you know, that's, I, I yeah. think we have, I think, I think we have to show up with that spirit. Um, and I, as I try to be really conscientious and conscious of my privilege and leveraging my privilege, if that's the right language, for the sake of those who may not have the same access to privilege. Um, and not, you know, not to pat myself on the back about that. Like, I, I, think I, I think I owe it to the world and I owe it to God. So I'm not self-congratulatory in that yeah. at all. So Martin Luther or Wesley that, you know, said, or somebody said, you know, I'm, whatever it is, whatever the topic was, I'm doing this because I can't do otherwise. And so, you know, which is, which is part of what put me in a posture to get to have the privilege of getting to know you and getting to be your friend and co-conspirator and co-mischief maker, you know, is that I, I just, um, I'm so, I'm so curious about what it means to, to try to both lay down the privileges that I have and not exercise full advantage of them for myself try to put them on a table so that other people can pick them up should they choose. And I, I just, I mean, my life is so much richer and fuller as a result. You know, I, I was telling somebody just the other day, one of, one of the many gifts I've gotten very selfishly from my relationship and friendship with you is the, um, the pace with which you move through the world and the pace with which you move through your day Be because you're somebody living with cerebral palsy you, you move at a pace that is contrary to the capitalist, colonialist, white supremacist, dominant culture, right? Because you can't do otherwise. I mean, you, you, can, only, you can only do what you can do, what your body and your chair will, will facilitate. And that's been such a gift to me to just like slow down, dude, slow down, which seems like such a small thing. Um, but it, it's transformative. It really is transformative for me. And, and oh. getting, to play, getting to play with Angus, which I'm going to get to do here in a little bit, is, uh, is one of the great joys of my life uh, right now. Just sheer joy. Well, again, thank you for all you said. And uh, so that we can land this plane and there will be room for many more uh, conversations, both podcasts and otherwise but podcast for the sake of this show yeah. um i will just once again say thank you and i think my way of landing the plane is rebecca and i are very deliberate about coming at this from a very spiritual place mm. but always allowing room for there to be those who might not have even a god concept who might wander their way into this room and you know i've joked rather openly a couple of times that i i'm not sure how the hell that happened but if you're that person i'm glad you're here and let's talk 
not so I can convert you, but because I find conversations like that interesting and intriguing and thrilling and all that. So I guess my way of landing where we've been today is I would just encourage persons who are listening who might be members of marginalized spaces and learning to live into their own strength and uh, ability in the world is, you know, do your best to be open to whatever conversation greets you. And I think in general, come to conversations ready to acknowledge the spark of humanity and common humanity in everybody, but particularly for marginalized communities, you know, I'm working with my intern right now on not, not apologizing for being in rooms you've already been invited into, mm. and even rooms that you haven't been invited into yet. <laughs> right, right. Uh, so I guess that's where I would leave us, folks. I hope you have an opportunity, as I always say, to go out and put some good into the world and good energy and good practice into the world this week we love you we thank you for listening to the listening to the show uh as rebecca always says you can find us on apple Podcasts, spotify google Podcasts. i'm gonna try in the next few weeks to investigate getting us on stitcher but we are located at most places where podcasts can be found thank you for listening to this show and ken once again this has just been fabulous thank you and enjoy always and uh i think we can safely say that as we did with Lindsay, who described herself rather cleverly as the, the interloper in chief last week uh this is only part one of uh, what I hope will be an ongoing conversation. So, friends, we'll see you next week and go do some good in the world. Thanks for listening. And as always, I'm the palsy, Justin Hancock. And I'm the palsy, Ken Crawford. Thanks, guys. Bye-bye. Cheers. Cheers.